Hello, welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today I show you Mark Warnquist, CEO of InShare. InShare is a insure tech that specifically focuses on distributing protection solutions to the on-demand economy, the Ubers, the Lyfts, the gig workers of the world. And that is an interesting and unique challenge we're going to dive into. And with that, here's my view of Mark. Mark, thanks for the time. Great to be here, Jason. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So Mark Warnquist of InShare, tell us about InShare. Well, InShare grew out of our experience at Uber. Myself, my co-founder, a bunch of us uh, were Uber, are Uber alums, Lyft alums, and Airbnb alums. We saw the challenges that, uh, from the inside that, that, that platform companies have in the space. Insurance is a top three expense item, a major blocker. And so we set out to do something better, move faster than incumbents, and uh, build solutions that benefit and help the on-demand economy grow and protect the gig workers on whom the on-demand economy largely depends. Excellent. So this is not a small problem and we're going to dive into it. So you kind of already went into the history, but anything you also want to add about the history? Like how did you guys come together to solve this problem? Were you all basically pulling your hair out, trying to solve it individually and realize it was a market here or what happened? Yeah. So at Uber, we found ourselves just inventing stuff. Uh, oh, really? Let's say I've seen the, I've seen the docuseries, but continue. Or, yeah. Uh, yeah. docuseries. <laughs> He alleged docu-series. Yeah, I've seen that too. It is quite interesting. And it was a great place and an interesting place to work. I say one year at Uber is like seven years anywhere else. So it's um, so we found ourselves in a space where there weren't insurance products, where we found we had to build it ourselves, invent it ourselves, episodic insurance. And incumbent carriers or insurance carriers weren't were certainly not used to this to this market. And so we found ourselves having to engage them, teach them, partner with them, frankly, to to help helping uh, Uber deliver the insurance that it needed. It needed to say that every ride was insured as a lot of work. So I was responsible for a good portion of that, including serving claims, which happens with insurance in 71 countries, which was a, a whole a whole other hornet's nest, let's put it that way. And yeah, we found ourselves as we were teaching others about this area and, uh, and building these solutions. Look, we can do this ourselves. Um, Uber's matured. We've seen a lot of the maturation curve that uh, the other carriers, the other platform companies are are about to go through. Let's build something special and let's do it differently than uh, than others. That's that's why we did this. And so, yeah, we, and yeah, we pulled our hair out. By the way, yeah, no <laughs> doubt. I mean, I think a lot of people don't. No one, no one ever stops to think about the insurance aspect of what they're doing, right? They go to do something because they want to do it, but they don't necessarily start to say, "Okay, am I properly covered?" Unless, unless they're nudged, right, or or they're like well educated that you buy a house, you buy insurance, you buy a car, you buy insurance, and people naively would think in most cases that they're covered for their activity for everything they do by that. But most, I mean, especially if we want to clock back to the infancy of Uber and left, most insurance policies did not include commercial activities, right? So people were actually driving around not protected unless they basically got something like what you guys put into place. And this, I got to think, is a major change in mindset for the insurance companies. So talk to me about the early challenges you had with saying to insurance companies like, hey, we want to protect these people. And they're like, wait a sec, it's personal car and that's being used for this much use. And how did that break their brain and how did you get around that? So the the solution was to go to the states and the DOIs and say, we need, uh, we need a regulatory structure. Uh, we need a regulatory framework that says for for Uber, for example, and Lyft, the transportation network companies is what they're called across most of the states. There needed to be regulations where the DIO, DOIs, Departments of Insurance, would say, here's the insurance you need for various periods. You know, you probably appreciate that it, in the car share experience, there's period one, there's period two, there's period three. Period one is where the driver's driving around. Uh, waiting for a signal that says there's somebody there that that uh, to dispatch to. Period of two is when he's 
he or she's on his way to pick you up. Period three is when you're in the car. So it took uh, a couple of years, two and a half years, to get to a place where nearly all the states, now all of the states, have that kind of regulatory structure. In the interim, Uber and Lyft had to do what they had to do uh, to build insurance products, to ins- to do everything they could do to, to fend off what you just said, that there's a gap in insurance. And uh, they did that, but it was not uh, it was not a simple task. It meant that Uber and Lyft bought the insurance. It means still that Uber and Lyft buy the insurance that covers the drivers, passengers, and third parties during each of these periods. Yeah, this is, I mean, when we preliminarily talked, I mean, this is a challenge in a lot of ways. It's also a challenge in how do you underwrite so many tiny, small individuals, right? When a law of large numbers in the insurance world says that if, hey, if I offer it to everybody or to a specific target niche, I can actually figure out on average what the risk is, right? You might be able to apply that to the car share, but maybe, but maybe not, because people are now doing something they've never done before. So, how do you face the challenge of underwriting so many tiny little contracts and doing so without putting yourself in a bad spot? Well, I would say that we've, we're we're entering phase two or phase three of that right now. So, the first phase was to do it at scale and to treat if I'm the bad driver and you're the good driver, treat us all the same, and to basically say to insurance carriers, "Here's my driver portfolio." I've got 100,000 drivers in the state of X and 200,000 drivers in the state of Y. And this is how many miles they're driving. It's all usage-based insurance. And there's a negotiation around the price per mile, et cetera, for that. But you're really not underwriting the individual risks in that phase of development, that phase of maturity. You're writing them in the, in the aggregate and doing your best. Uh, that's called portfolio underwriting, but doing your best to nail the things that matter. And that's not easy, right? So the next phase, and I think we will be entering this next phase in the not too distant future, is bringing more discrete telematic solutions to the space. So that if I'm the, you're the great driver and I'm the less than great driver, you're not subsidizing me because today you are. And what really should happen is that there are aligned interests aligned with me, the not so great driver, to be a better driver just because it's going to affect my insurance costs. That world hasn't hit the the on the gig delivery space or the gig rideshare space yet in this country. It has in other parts of the world and it will in this uh, in this part of the world in not too distant future. That's just it, right? You're buying fleet insurance essentially for the entire fleet and then disaggregating that. But in actuality, right, the reality, in actuality, the, the better drivers out there had a higher cost of operation than they would have otherwise if you were able to underwrite them individually. I mean, you know, for all we know, these are people who were who were basically paying thousands of dollars a month for their normal insurance because they were terrible drivers. And those people were getting a sweetheart deal from you versus and versus the the opposite effects. So it's quite the challenge. It is the challenge. So there's there are some standards. I want to say that you know to be a driver on any of these platforms, you have to pass certain tests. You have to have uh, you're, they're going to check your motor vehicle record. They're going to check how many your background check, and they're going to do all of those sorts of things. But even that said, there is a wide disparity in driving behaviors and driving performance when it comes to safety. And it is not unusual to see that the bottom twenty percent of drivers are responsible for the lion's share of the insurance costs. Oh wow, the eighty twenty rule strikes again, does it? It strikes everywhere, and it certainly strikes here. So, talk to me about the method of distribution. Clearly, you're going and talking to these, you know, gig economy type companies. Are you pushing the kind of underwrite down to the end user level at this point, or is that still in the works, or is it still largely more fleet based? Still in the works is something that we're going to be bringing to 
to market by the end of this year. So today it's still at that high level fleet insurance package, right? So engaging through the brokers, engaging these companies and working on them and on improving their, lowering their insurance costs and building better solutions for them. That's our value prop. The second part of that value prop is doing just what we said, and that's bringing more granularity to the underwriting and the pricing. So there's aligned interests and um, those who should pay more do pay more. Good. So how are you collecting that information? Is this all cell phone based? Or are we talking about the dongles that people are familiar with in their machine? And their, well, and some insurance companies have had the dongles that plug into your utility uh, board. So how are you collecting this information? So the um, you can't use the dongles. This is a space where you're where in the gig working space you're driving your own personal vehicle, right? And and you're you know your own independent contractor. And there are issues around control in that environment, at least in the United States and in other parts of the world. Too much control by the platform company creates arguments at a minimum that independent workers are not no longer independent and employees, right? So so that's not how it can work, and it's too expensive to do it that way, and uh, you'll just never get off the ground. So the frankly the best and only way to do that right now is through the cell phone. And, and yes, um, cell phone, mobile, mobile telematics is terrific. It's not the gold standard, but it's the best that is available for this use case today. So that's that's how we do it. And there's a number of ways to do that. If a company, now I'm not talking about the Ubers and the Lyfts, but a, a newer company does not have an app that allows for this, we can provide that for them. If they have an app, but they're not collecting the telematics, we can do an SDK integration and pull the telematics out of that. And if they have everything and uh, and just want to use it better for insurance purposes, they can API it into into us, and we can use that data for insurance uh, for insurance purposes. Excellent. I mean, that's uh, when you think about the number of sensors in the phone. You know, the mind starts to think about all the creative ways you can get that information. I mean. There's uh, you know, gyroscopes in there that can detect pretty much abrupt braking, or just even the amount of time it takes them to get from point A to point B will tell you if they were speeding or not, right? So there's all kinds of interesting data there. So, but that's an interesting, unique challenge is staying on the side of what's called of the labor law issues in this space as to when does someone become an employee? Not something conventional insurance carriers have to worry about, is it now? Yeah, so they don't they don't have to worry about it, but they need to think about it if they're going to offer products that are going to match and meet and be purchased by the uh, by the platform companies, right? And so and that when you when you sit on the inside and you see the many many conversations and the great ideas about we would love to do this for gig workers and this would be terrific and we could get more stickiness with workers and how do we win the war for workers and all that good stuff, which is good stuff and really good stuff, but uh, sometimes it runs up against the wall called uh, the uncertainty of class classification and the risk of that uh, is something that cannot be overcome. So you, we need to be very mindful of that as we deploy and talk with platform companies about the products that, how do you deploy these products to do the right thing for gig workers in a way that's not going to destroy your operating model? That is the question. Yeah. I mean, of all the things to, to throw you offside from a labor law perspective, one would think insurance is not one of the things that they're willing to endanger themselves over that. But you know, it's um, you know, it's still a very, very present concern they have to deal with. It is a present concern, but there is in today in today's world across the delivery companies and the rideshare companies, there is a scarcity of supply for drivers, and that's and the only way in which these companies can drive revenue is if they have drivers, right? So they really need to. They're very focused on supply, and one of the things that I think many have found, not all, and I'm not speaking for anyone in particular here, but you know, the, the typical bonuses that are deployed, short-term bonuses to attract you to my platform versus somebody else's platform, 
they work for a very short period of time. And then you go back to wherever you were. If you want to create stickiness, perhaps there's a better way uh, doing more to take care of them. So that's the business proposition, but you got to do it smart. Yeah. I mean, in fairness, a lot of these people, the demand is coming from so many different sources that a lot of them are working for multiple, right? So you have people who will be subscribed, be signed up with Uber, Lyft, and say Amazon for like random, random deliveries. So that's another interesting challenge. Like, how do you deal with the gig economy worker or gig economy driver who's basically working for multiple companies? Is there an overlap? Are you profiling them? How do you handle that? So let me start with no, we're not profiling them because uh, that would be a problem. But, uh, <laughs> but well, I mean, but, I think it more so of them being the, you know, them being the ultimate consumer of this. Right, like in creating a profile around, oh, you're doing all of these. Okay, well, so it wasn't, you know, <laughs> profiling in a positive sense. Okay, so no, I understand. I understand. I just needed to, you know, the lawyer in me had to had to say that. I apologize, but it's, uh, but this is this is a reality. And there were, you know, some years ago, it was thought to be by some disloyal to the dual app. Today, it's the reality. Right, folks need to make a living. They're they're going to do gig work, and uh, and they're going to be on multiple platforms. So there's a couple of different things. If you're buying a program, if a, if a platform company is buying an insurance protection for the benefit of the gig workers that work on its platform, those protections extend to the extent that you are on dispatch or that you are working on that platform and not on another platform. That's a very, very typical solution. It's not a great solution for the gig worker because the gig worker, you know, when they go to, the, to work for platform B, may, may or may not have those same protections. So two ways of solving this. One way is to do everything you can to get to multiple platforms so that they are covered while they're on there. A second is to is to build, and this is something we're working on, but uh, not 2022, but build a portable benefit solution that goes with the driver wherever they are. And people have been talking about that for a long time, but there needs to be, uh, whether there's a government solution, which I frankly do not favor, or a private solution, which I do favor because I want to be that solution, that I think is is solves this the best. Well, yeah, and it actually brings in some interesting challenges, right? So the difference between shipping cargo or food versus people in terms of liability, right? Like there's how much time are you spending delivering meals for Uber versus delivering people for Uber, right? Like those are different risk profiles. And yeah, or or when an accident does happen and they're on you know, five different services, you know, which service were you technically working for at the time? You know, the, the, the underwriting, the time of underwriting creates interesting challenges as well. You've got your finger on it. So as you're thinking about it, writing in this space, maybe we should uh, collaborate more, but you're exactly right, right? So it, whether or not our company can feel comfortable underwriting a particular risk, one of the key criteria is, do you have the tech that enables me with precision, enables us with precision to know whether Mark was on platform A or platform B at that time? They won't know about platform B, but what do you know whether they were on your platform? If you can't know that within seconds, frankly, because time one second you're here and two seconds later you're over there. You can't underwrite the risk because you're picking up everything. So that so there's a certain tech component to the underwriting that, that we need to know. That's very important. And you put your finger on something else very important. The burrito in the back versus the passenger in the back is a very, very different exposure. Here's what I think uh, when I think about the sharing economy and why I love it. One of the reasons I love it. I think of this, the risk in this space as the cylinder is in a slot machine and it's got, you've got your assets that move in time, your users that move in time and your uses that move in time. And every time you pull the lever, you got a different risk. And so that is, you don't have that with standard insurance, frankly. And what that tells me is this is a, this is a data problem. This is a data science problem. To 
No, it's absolutely. And it's, it's, you know, the, you know, going back to the burrito in the back versus the person, you know, the burrito doesn't distract the driver and worst case scenario in an accident causes a mess. Whereas the driver can be distracted by the passenger and the passenger can suffer a lot worse than a messy burrito. So yeah, it's an interesting, wow. It's an interesting challenge all outright. You're right. Data is the only way to solve it. And to, I mean, and let's face it, this is done properly. This is an incredible win for everybody because the driver's protected. The cost is is basically set at a affordable level because you're not just saying, well, we got to compensate for all the unknown risk by, by basically having people at a higher threshold, which is oftentimes what you do in group pooling. When you can get down to the, when you can truly understand the actual risk, you can price it properly, right? So huge win across the board there. Frankly, the learnings that you're going to get about end user behavior from all of this is going to be even valuable, invaluable towards the general insurance industry in general, right? Because you're getting you're getting a deeper look or deeper understanding out of absolute pure necessity as to how people drive and behave themselves, especially when they have like think about just the entire. The, let's go back to the passenger versus non-passenger. One of the things that we don't get, you know, that we don't differentiate on uh, when it comes to pricing is you might have small kids who could be distracting in the back seat. But when you think about that, frankly, that is a risk factor in consideration of how well I drive as every parent who's ever threatened to ram the car into a pole has basically, has basically realized. I, I think you're right. I think you're onto something and it's really our thesis, right? So that's that's what we're trying to solve. It takes it takes a lot of effort, a lot of work, a lot of programs, a lot of data uh, to get to that place. But 10 years from now, who knows what assets we're going to be sharing and using? And that risk profile dilemma conundrum is going to be similar in that context. At least we're going to learn from today's world and be able to extend it. So the more that we can learn exactly what you just talked about, that is going to position us not just in today's sharing economy, but tomorrow's. And tomorrow's, I have the sense is, uh, and I believe, is going to be I haven't. I don't even think we've seen the beginning yet. No, I agree. And that brings up an interesting question: Is I mean, we're primarily talking about automotive at this point. Are you looking at other aspects of this? We're still a small company. We'll be thirty people, and so there's, uh, as I like to say, there's a lot of wood to chop. And um, we look at products through three lenses. Um, first, is there is there a screaming customer customer demand that we can solve better than others? And obviously, that's number one. And number two, on the heels of that, as a capitalist, is is there a revenue opportunity? And the third one that follows with that is is there data? Right now, in the auto sense, in the wheel sense, as we talk about it, it's really number one for us. And um, gig workers, protecting gig workers because the protection gap is is 1A for us in that space. But there's, you know, the sharing property space uh, is uh, is another area where data and the same principles can be brought to bear. And that's in our roadmap for 2023 and beyond. I mean, it's the sharing of property space. Oh boy, yeah, no, honestly, because you think about every business being uniquely different, and and the risk that they introduce into a shared workspace, right? Like being able to, you have to have a, a understanding of the risk profile of any given type of business, everything down to like the type of data they collect and store or have access to, and then basically be able to put that into a mosaic of you know this location based on the um, all the pieces in the mosaic this is the risk profile like that wow what a challenge and beyond that i mean i think to myself well driverless vehicles eventually maybe being a thing that takes some of the risk out but then what about the human being on all these like for lack of a better term task rabbit jobs right where people are basically being paid to go out and do other people's grocery shopping those types of you know that human interaction that the human piece is not going to be replaced anytime soon so how do you properly basically ensure around that is going to be a major challenge. It is a major challenge. We were, we were engaged with a, a, a number of entities and one of them is a, a leader in the United States in that space. And they, you know, in, in terms of attracting, retaining uh, gig workers and being that platform for gig workers. And they're, 
terrific opportunity for us to to partner with them to bring solutions to that space. Exactly the task rabbit space. I mean, if you think about what's happening in, in the gig worker in gig workers, there are some who believe, and I happen to be one of them, that in, by 2030 there's going to be a higher population of gig workers than there are non-gig workers in this space in the United States at the minimum. And uh, you're going to see more and more of these task rabbit, task rabbits, and, and related companies in that space. There needs to be, and there were. There are going to be increasing protection gaps for those workers unless we do something for them. Well, especially in the U.S., given dependence upon uh, the employer for the retirement and and healthcare benefits that basically that Americans need, right? Like that is that is a unique challenge, not necessarily present in other countries, but it's. Yeah, I mean, like, and as for anyone who wants to debate you on that statement about more gig workers than not, you know, when you start thinking about the number of permutations or different things that are caught in this. So, for example, I need graphic design work done as a small business owner. I turn to gig workers already, right? Like, I turn to the fibers and networks of the world, right? So, everything, you know, any when you think about the number of small businesses who need services who don't necessarily are not going to employ a single person and would traditionally maybe have just not done it or muddled through it themselves or, or basically, you know, spent way more money than they probably should have to get it done. You know, the ability to get this stuff on almost on demand is enormous. So I totally believe in that. I think, I think a lot of this, there's a modularization of people's specializations. And if you don't, they don't, the company doesn't need you there 24 seven. Well, not 24 seven, you shouldn't be doing that. The company doesn't need you for your 40 some odd hours per week. Then that leans towards the need for gig work. Couldn't agree more. I mean, you, you talked about the graphic designer. I uh, When I needed to create a, a pitch deck, because I'm not great uh, artistically, I go to gig workers to, to get that done. You think about home care workers and all the other kinds. There's a study that was produced in, by the Geneva Association March, March last month. And uh, it's a great example of what you just said. It speaks to the growing population of gig workers. And it also highlighted exactly what you just said, which is the United States has the greatest protection gaps of any country that has uh, gig workers, uh, any developed country that has gig workers. So let's solve it here. Yeah. And knowing knowing how your country thinks, it will be solved the private sector through private sector solutions, typically not government. So it's you're, you're right, on the, you're right on, the, on the ground floor of that. So that makes a lot of sense. So this has been great. You know, I got three questions that I asked before we wrap things up. The first one is, what is, if you had one wish for something you could change in your company or the industry as a whole, what would it be? I wish we could move faster. I wish... Uh, Are you I trying to find more developers? Because that's a common refrain as well. <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm always trying to find more developers, more affordable developers, if I could be precise. But um, uh, the, the opportunities are there and you have we have to be smart about prioritization like any company, but the market pull is huge and I just wish we could move faster. Um, that's That's my number one wish. I think about that every morning, every evening, every night. Uh, That's my challenge. I don't fault you. It's funny because I always, uh, (laughs) well, that probably feeds into the second question is what's been the biggest challenge in a company to where it is today? So it's uh, the biggest challenge is we have great, a great team, great talent. We have to do what we do. We have to earn the pen, meaning we have to insurance companies have to trust us, uh, give us authority give us the pen to write their balance sheets. That takes a great team. It takes great tech and we're doing it. And it's, and we're the only MGA in America that's doing this in the space in which we're in right now. That's hard. That's been a challenge. So it's, it's an uphill struggle constantly. And, and there is no substitute for having world-class talent because it's the only way you can get it done. 
I get that. I mean, uh, for those, the second you said hand to pen, I'm like, ah, now we're talking insurance world. And I, you know, a term I'm very familiar with. And yeah, for those who don't understand, like end of the day, you guys are, you know, in, your company's not the insurance company. Your company yeah. is the distributor of that. And, you know, other companies are basically saying that you're handling the underwriting, which is not a small thing. Like that's, they eat the risk on that. So it is, it is very, very, very important that they learn to trust you and that you have the systems to back up that trust because otherwise you're dead in the water, right? Like you're not going to, you're not going to stand up an insurance company on your own because the capital required for that is enormous. You're a distribution channel. So makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And if you think about what the public markets, public markets have not treated some insure techs kindly in the last uh, six, eight, 10 months, right? So that's a macro environment consideration that we have to constantly say we're not them. Yes, the old. Uh, are you trying to say that uh, that even even raising funds at this point is is a little bit myopic? Uh, everybody's looking at the last IPO or the most recent stock price. Unfortunately, yeah, no, there's, there's it's a challenge. That. It is a challenge. We will overcome that challenge too. But it's it's uh, it is most certainly a challenge. This macro environment is not the twenty twenty two is not twenty twenty one. Let's put it that way. That reminds me of a funny story that a case study at university and they were like, where you? and it was a case study on a tech company. They're like, where are you going to get all the money to do all this? And like, we're a dot-com company with an E in front of it in 1998. You think there's going to be a problem raising money here? Right? So the judges just couldn't stop laughing at that answer because it was just like, yeah, you're right. Anyway, so yes, unfortunately, yeah, I've not the first one I've known who's headed into a funding round in a challenging environment. It's uh, it's not, it's, it's never fun. It's a little less fun at that point, but best of luck to you there. Last question I have for you is what excites you the most about what it is you're working on and keeps on getting you up in the morning and they keep on fighting the good fight of entrepreneurship? I think it's the gig workers. I know it's the gig workers. We have a lot of passion for that and I want to help the companies grow, but you can't spend any time at Uber and deal with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gigs workers and hear their stories and not feel for them. And not and you know that there's a big gap there. And we're actually in a place where we can help solve that. And that feels good. It feels good for us. It feels good for the, the team. They feel like they're doing something that's good for society. And uh, it's always good to make money as well. But that is the best part. That's what motivates me. I get that. You're trying to, you're basically protecting people who are just out there trying to make a living, right? That's and right. protecting them from, from, from a horrible, you know, one horrible accident and their entire livelihoods is gone, right? And if they're not properly protected... Yeah, good on you. No, I, I, I can see how that would be mo- incredibly motivating. It is. Their car is usually their number one asset, right? So let's, let's do something to protect them and ensure that their families have the, the additional uh, income that they need to make ends meet. That's, cool. it's, uh, it feels good in the morning. It feels good in the evening. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I'm the number one asset plus the number one generator of income now. So it's, uh, it's all coming together. Mark, thank you so much for this. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jason. Cheers. Excellent. So that was this week's episode of FinTech Impact. If you are a gig worker company and need insurance solutions, by all means, please check out InShare. And as always, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.